Welcome to Green Team Speaks 2, the podcast for the Paulson Institute's Green Finance Center. Hello, I'm Deborah Lair, Vice Chairman and Executive Director at the Paulson Institute. Today, we're speaking with Jeffrey Heal, Professor of Economics at Columbia University's Business School. He has an impressive resume where he's made significant contributions in the field of environmental economics. Most recently, Professor Heal contributed an important chapter to a report published by the Paulson Institute, Financing Nature, Closing the Global Biodiversity Financing Gap, which has received global attention. Jeff, welcome to the Green Team Speaks to podcast. We're delighted to have you with us today. You were already working in economics, climate change, and the environmental space before it was trendy, and it's now one of the most prominent and urgent global issues of our time. As such, you're such an important voice on this subject, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I am too. It's a great topic. It's a fascinating topic. It's been interesting me for several decades now, as you you indicated, and I'm really pleased that it's getting more attention from the, the wider world. Well, there's a lot for us to cover today, so let's get started. So in a report that the Paulson Institute just released, Financing Nature, Closing the Global Biodiversity Financing Gap, you wrote a very important chapter about considerations on how to value nature and presenting a case, in my words, not yours, I'll add, why bees, trees, and bats might be considered asset classes. Can you tell our listeners why it's important to put a value on nature and what that means in practical terms? Yes, absolutely. It's important to put a value on nature because nature provides economic value to a degree which is actually very, very underappreciated, massively underappreciated. An awful lot of our economic activities are dependent on sort of goods and services that nature provides. So the examples that you alluded to uh, in that nice alliteration you just used is that, for example, much of our food comes from plants that require pollination and insects and uh, some birds, bats, are important in pollinating food. So without pollinating insects and the other, other animals involved in pollination, we'd probably have a lot less food than we do today. And also the food that we have would be a lot less tasty. It's, it's some of the interesting foods and the enjoyable foods that actually require pollination. Stuff that doesn't require pollination tends to be the big grains, and wheat, corn, things of that sort. Uh, rice doesn't require pollination either. So the big sort of staple foods, the, the grains don't require pollinations, but fruit and vegetables, for example, all require pollination. Without insects, we wouldn't have those fruits and vegetables we have today. And the value of that is enormous. Uh, So you can work out the value of the food that we would uh, miss if we didn't have pollinating insects and pollinating birds. And that runs to hundreds of billions of dollars. And then you can value the the insects and the the pollinating animals that provide this food. Uh, And, you know, say, what's the value of an asset that provides services that run into hundreds of billions of dollars a year? And the answer to that is the value is in the trillions. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's very important that people understand that much of what we take for granted depends on services provided by nature and that those services have huge economic value. Now, in many cases, of course, nature has other types of value as well. You know, it has sort of aesthetic value. It's, uh, it's beautiful. It may have uh, other types of value in addition to that. It's a sort of a spiritual value in some ways for some people. But it, in particular, it does have an economic value, and that's not in any sense to argue that it doesn't have spiritual value or aesthetic value. But the economic value is massive and is widely underappreciated. Well, and I think you've really outlined in your chapter some pretty astonishing numbers 
in one case, looking at the economic case for financing biodiversity, you were estimating, and I realize that these numbers are very hard to put a definitive value on because it's a new way of considering how to put a value on the things that we find in nature, but you're estimating that the biodiversity funding gap is around $700 billion annually. So in these times, how can we expect government to help with filling this gap? Clearly, there has to be a role for the private sector to bring money to help with that financing. Governments won't be able to do it on their own. And what can we expect as you look at the reaction to the report and as we see an increasing number of private sector companies like a BlackRock looking at how they can invest, invest in climate change and developing innovative financing tools, do you see that this will catch on for financing and valuing nature as well? I hope it will, but it's not easy and it's certainly not obvious that it will for example, it's, it's relatively easy to finance climate-friendly activities because there are specific companies and specific technologies which really go to the essence of preventing climate change. And I'm thinking, obviously, of renewable energy, mm -hmm. electric vehicles, storage batteries, and a range of other things of that sort. And there are companies out there that are publicly traded companies that you can invest in if you want to be associated with these kinds of activities. So you, know, you can invest in a whole range of utilities that have big investments in renewable energy. You can invest in the people who make wind turbines or solar panels. You can invest in people who make batteries for electric vehicles. You can invest in Tesla and a couple of other companies that are uh, beginning to produce significant numbers of electric vehicles. So it's not difficult to devise a climate-friendly portfolio these days. Mm -hmm. And that's a big change, incidentally, from maybe even as little as 10 years ago, maybe even as little as five years ago, actually, uh, because these companies have grown very rapidly and they're, they're big enough for sort of big investors to put a significant piece of their portfolio in, in them today. Now, there's no companies whose business model really actively promotes biodiversity in the same way as, say, Tesla's business model promotes the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions or a utility business model can promote the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. There are no companies that are focused around biodiversity and its conservation, at least no major public companies. There are a few smaller ones. Mm -hmm. and you've got you know, companies that promote ecotourism, for example, and ecotourism can provide quite powerful incentives for conserving green spaces and the animals that live on it. I mean, in Southern Africa, countries like South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, some of the others down there, they get a lot of business, a lot of tourist business from the conservation of their biodiversity. And it's in, in it's most of those countries, but certainly in Namibia and Botswana, it's the second largest source of revenue uh, for mm -hmm. the country and a, and a big fraction of GDP. So, But it's, it's hard for you or me to invest directly in that. Um, there isn't a sort of a portfolio, an easily tradable asset. And that's the real problem with talking about financing biodiversity conservation. We haven't really got to the point where there are liquid, widely tradable assets that are built around the conservation of biodiversity in the way that there are liquid, widely tradable assets that are built around the mitigation of greenhouse gases, greenhouse gas emissions at the moment. And that's, the, that's the change that has to happen. It hasn't happened yet, unfortunately. Well, one of the things that we saw in the green finance space for climate was that you had to have good government policy and that had to be the leader 
before we started to see then the private sector following. In the U.S., it's a little challenging because much of this is from the bottom up. But in China, where we do a lot of work, we saw that the government was the leader. And even though the government can only provide a very small percentage, say 10 to 15 percent of the money that's actually needed to meet their climate goals, we've seen a real growth over the last five years of private sector options for financing. And so hopefully with the kind of study and work that you're doing, we can see that same kind of progression in financing nature. I think certainly, as you were alluding to during the pandemic, people have seen the linkages and the value of nature and seen the linkage between nature and the catching of disease. It certainly had a much bigger result with a global shutdown leading to a global recession. And now as governments look at developing how they're going to re-energize their economies, how do you see that governments, if you were advising them, can start to incorporate valuing nature as part of their own economic recovery? Well, a big part of conserving biodiversity actually is preventing climate change. I mean, there are two big drivers of biodiversity loss. One, obviously, is habitat destruction. And that's driven by you know the need to build more houses, more factories, the need to grow more food and clear land for growing food and so on. So habitat destruction is one. But another one, obviously, is climate change. Um, a lot of species are threatened with extinction because of climate change. So a policy that really firmly addresses climate change would be a significant contribution to uh, addressing biodiversity conservation as well. And in, through that, there's certainly plenty of measures that a government could take to reopen the economy after the depression that we're in at the moment. I mean, widely discussed both in this country and in Europe is a Green New Deal of some sort. Mm-hmm. doesn't have to be exactly what IOC is proposing, but uh, some form of extensive investment in renewable energy, in electric vehicles, in the infrastructure that's required for electric vehicles and electric transportation, maybe the development of a hydrogen economy. Hydrogen is in many ways uh, an attractive fuel. It's a clean fuel. And hydrogen has the potential to fuel things like uh, heavy trucks, an aircraft, not just cars. So you, we, we'd easily invest hundreds of billions of dollars in that type of infrastructure, and it would generate a lot of jobs, potentially good uh, skilled jobs. You could also directly invest in conservation. I think that that's actually under uh, undervalued as an activity, um, and they can provide a lot of interesting jobs in sort of extending national parks, conserving national parks, improving national parks, both in this country and in other countries. Um, And we could do the same with marine protected areas, for example, extend marine protected areas, police them better, manage them better. Uh, Those things all contribute to conservation and they all create jobs immediately. Yeah. And I think you've highlighted a really important point as well, that governments, one of the most important steps that they can take is both stopping to subsidize bad industries, polluting industries are ones that are destroying nature. Yeah, absolutely. The US, there are very significant subsidies to the uh, fossil fuel industry. I mean, there's a calculation which I did, which is based on some numbers mm-hmm. produced by the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which suggests that every household in the US subsidizes the fossil fuel industry to the extent of somewhere between six and $8,000 a year, which is a truly stunning number. Basically, through tax giveaways, there's a whole lot of features in the tax code which have been built in slowly over, really, over the last century which are extremely favorable to the fossil fuel industry. And these amount, of course, to subsidies because they're getting out of paying tax. And the value of these is just huge. And people do occasionally talk about the subsidies that are being given to the renewable energy industry, but they're actually peanuts by comparison with the extent of the subsidies we're seeing to to fossil fuels in the US. And in many other countries too, incidentally. 
Fossil fuels are very, very heavily subsidized all around the world. One of the other interesting points that you made was about the role of nature also. If, if we could, for example, protect the wetlands, the cost of protecting the wetlands is significantly less expensive than if we allowed them to be destroyed and had to build a similar man-made facility to do the same job. And you pointed out an example in New York where this was the case. Yeah, wetlands are very valuable in a lot of ways. They clean water, they sort of absorb water in the event of floods. Uh, so one of the reasons we have an awful lot of floods at various points, for example, in the, the valley of the Mississippi River, is that it used to be full of wetlands, and wetlands are like sponges, they're porous. So they absorb an awful lot of water and stop it flowing around. Uh, a lot of those wetlands were drained. They used to be described as swamps rather than wetlands, and the word swamp has sort of pejorative associations. Swamp is something you don't want. You know, the swamps of Washington and so on. And so the Army Corps of Engineers drained most of the wetlands in the Mississippi Valley. And because of that, it's now very prone to flooding. And we've had lots of houses built on the floodplains. And every few years, uh, there's some massive disasters there because houses are flooded and people are threatened and maybe even killed. What I was referring to in New York, actually, is the, uh, the Catskills watershed. New York City is rather fortunate. It gets all of its water as surface water from the Catskills, which is a smallish range of mountains about, I suppose, about 120 miles north and slightly west of, of New York City. And there's a, it's a big catchment area. It rains quite a lot there. The slopes there assemble the rain, and the rainwater is collected up in a big reservoir and then comes down through by pipelines to New York City. And virtually all the drinking water in New York City comes from the Catskills. And what's interesting about the watershed there is that it performs a couple of quite important functions. The water sort of percolates through the earth, and the earth actually acts as a very, very good filter and removes vast numbers of impurities and microbes from the, from the water. And the water that comes out is so clean that it doesn't actually have to be filtered anymore. Normally, the drinking water that comes out of our taps has been very heavily filtered by very expensive plants. And to build a filtration plant for New York City would cost about, in current money, probably around about $12 billion, which is a great deal of money, even for a rich city. Because of the, the way the watershed in the Catskills functions, we don't actually have to do that. The, the watershed in the Catskills functions as a filtration plant. So you could actually put a value on it there, right there, and then it's sort of somewhere in the order of $12 billion because it's performing the same service as a 10 to $12 billion built plant would provide. Well, and if you can be innovative then about how you finance protection of wetlands, you could see a whole group of assets, as we talked about in the first question, coming up around those. We talk at the Paulson Institute about it creating something called a mangrove bond that would focus on exactly that, how you capture private financing to go into things like protecting wetlands. We've seen some of this. Bank of America has done a reforestation bond, and the World Bank has really been on the cutting edge and looking creatively about doing bond issuances, including even a pandemic bond. So have you seen or do you advocate in particular for certain kinds of green financial instruments that could be used? And, and how do you think we can structure those? Not, not specifically from a technical aspect, but just looking at working with governments and multilateral institutions in the private sector to try and attract money to understand the value, just as you've given it a very practical example of protecting a wetland or a forest and the role that they can play for carbon capture 
or in insects for pollinating. Yeah. So New York and occasionally New York Watershed, which provides so much value to the city, there was uh, the, the, the functioning of the watershed was actually threatened back in the late 1990s by development and by more intensive farming. So the city actually raised what it called a watershed bond. Um, they raised, I think, $1.7 billion in, on the bond market and used the proceeds of that to uh, essentially to stabilize the watershed. And they invested it in building new sewage systems in all the communities around the Catskills uh, and in uh, improving the, sort of the, uh, the way water flows and so on up there in a variety of ways. So that was actually a case where they did go to capital markets to raise money for uh, biodiversity restoration. And $1.7 billion, so quite a lot of money was raised in that particular case. So that type of thing could be done more widely. And in fact, the whole Catskill thing could have been privatized in principle. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can imagine a kind of a Catskills Watershed Management Corporation uh, managing the watershed up there, uh, raising money uh, through bond issues or through equity sales, and then getting a return on that by selling the water to New York City. And we have to pay for the water here, obviously. So, I mean, the water has an economic value. Mm-hmm. So that investment you know, could conceivably have been done by a private corporation. I'm not saying that, I mean, as it is, it worked out just fine. And there were New York City's uh, some very creditworthy organizations that was easily able to raise the money. But in other cases, uh, you know, it might be easier for a private corporation to raise the money than for a, a local city government to raise the money. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, you can begin to see situations where conservation gives rise to a string of payments, and those payments can be the, 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 the dividend on equity investment or the, the interest on bond investments. So we could use uh, private capital markets for funding conservation. It's a relatively rare. It doesn't happen all that often, but it, it's certainly conceivable. And we're seeing more an increasing number of examples of this. You mentioned forests. Forest conservation is an area I've actually been quite actively involved in. Under the 2015 Paris Agreement, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change agreed to put in place a system called RED+, Plus, where RED, R-E-D-D, stands for Reducing Emissions from Forest Degradation and Deforestation. Um, the idea was to provide a financial incentive to countries with big tropical rainforests to conserve those rainforests. And the, the point being, obviously, that um, forests absorb a great deal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, so they're a very important part of the carbon cycle. And when you cut them down, a lot of the CO2 is released into the atmosphere. And so conserving forests is an important part of tackling the climate problem. So the idea behind this was to provide countries with a a financial incentive to conserve forests. Now, that system is now in place, and countries which can demonstrate that they're successfully conserving their forests can actually get carbon credits for this, which in principle are saleable. And one of the things we'd like to see is people buying these. At the moment, it's quite hard for these countries to sell them, so they don't have a lot of value. But we'd like to be able to create more of a market these carbon credits. And I hope, I'm hoping that that will develop in the next few years. I mean, they could, in principle, be sold to companies that want to be able to say that they're reducing their carbon footprint. So, you know, companies, a variety of big US companies have said they want to reduce their carbon footprint. You know, Microsoft, Amazon, um, basically all, all of the big tech companies have said within the last uh, year or so that they really want to reduce their carbon footprint massively. One way for them to do that would be to buy these carbon offsets that have been created by forest conservation in, in the tropical regions. And of course, conservation of tropical forests is a key step in conserving biodiversity. And the direct motivation for financing these things is climate change and the desire to prevent the emission of CO2. Uh, but if you can conserve uh, you know, tropical forests, it's a major step on the route to conserving biodiversity. 
Well, and speaking of the big tech companies, one of the areas where we have seen a big change in green finance has been in the development of the fintech industry because it's allowed through just smartphones the ability to get to people who are traditionally outside of the financial infrastructure. And so they don't have to have a bank account to be able to reach them. And it's allowed the development of all kinds of innovative tools. And we're starting to see that in sustainability and green development, where you can use fintech as a way, for example, to give special loan preferences to companies who can show that they meet certain standards for being a sustainable company. Have you seen the use of technology helping in valuing nature? A little bit, but not a lot. The big problem in this area is that measuring natural capital is quite hard. Natural capital consists of trees, of ecosystems, of, of animals, and so on. And it's hard to know exactly how you measure this. One of the things which actually has changed a bit in the last 10 years because of technological developments is the ability to measure forests and forest cover. I mean, there's enough satellites going around the world now taking enough photographs that you can really measure very accurately whether deforestation is going on and how much deforestation is occurring. I mean, I was actually just giving you some sense of how powerful these photographs are. I was looking at some photographs of Papua New Guinea, which is covered with forests and which has an amazing amount of biodiversity. I was looking at these, these photographs along with someone who grew up in Papua New Guinea. He was looking at uh, the forest around a town called Wewak on the north side of Papua New Guinea. And he said, oh, my God, they've cut down the tree I used to climb. And he said, when I, when, I, when I was a kid, he pointed to his place and said, when I was a kid, there was a great big tree here, and it's gone. <clears throat> so you could actually, from these satellite photographs, you could identify individual trees and see that a particular tree, which this gentleman remembered very well from his childhood, had actually been cut down. Uh, so you can actually, you can effectively ca- count the trees in a forest from these high resolution satellite images now, which means that you don't have to go there in order to monitor whether the forest has been cut down or not. So if you want to implement, uh, for example, a system of uh, financial incentives for conserving forests, uh, then you don't actually have to have people on the ground checking whether the forest is there. You can just look at satellite data and uh, computers can be trained obviously to look at the satellite data and count the number of trees and, and check whether there's been any deforestation or not. So that's certainly a, an important step in being able to securitize sort of the value of forests. But there, um, there was a big breakthrough in securitization a number of years back for conventional markets. So for example, when, you know, a long time back, you couldn't trade mortgage-backed securities. Mortgages weren't tradable. When a bank issued a mortgage, it stayed on its balance sheet for the duration of the mortgage. And at some point, somebody thought of pooling mortgages and then making mortgage-backed securities where you traded the you essentially traded the the mortgage and owning them owning a share of the mortgage and that titled you to a share of the payments that came into the mortgage pool. And so suddenly mortgages from being illiquid assets that just sat on a bank's balance sheet became tradable. That was a very smart move on somebody's part. I don't know who thought of securitizing mortgages, but it was a very smart move. We haven't yet had the equivalent move, unfortunately, in the field of biodiversity or natural capital. We haven't had a breakthrough in, in, in which somebody has seen how to securitize this, how to pull this, how to make it into a tradable asset. So technology has helped in measuring the underlying assets, but it hasn't helped yet in making these assets into a format where they can be traded easily. Well, something to hope for looking ahead, certainly as we look towards China's hosting of the UN Biodiversity Conference next year, as we get governments together to at least create the political will 
something, again, that we saw in green finance when China hosted the G20. They created a green finance study group, which started to put together the regulatory structure for the G20 to look at green finance. And it was after that we really started to see movement in that area. Hopefully, we can see something similar coming out of the CBD COP next year. Do you have high expectations for that meeting, or how do you see its role in this? Um, I rarely have terribly high expectations of big international meetings, I regret to say. I have to agree with you on that. (laughs) Because the the, the number of, I mean, I've been heavily involved in the whole climate change area, and I've been involved in an awful lot of these meetings, and generally they're disappointing. Just every now and then, one is a big success. I think the Paris meeting was a great success, and I hope that the next meeting, which will be in, I guess, Glasgow in the uh, in the UK, um, Scotland, will be a big success too. I very much hope so. What I think a meeting like this can do, and I, I very much hope that the, uh, the, the one in, in China does do, is to raise awareness of the importance of nature and make people understand that our living standards depend on nature, our affluence depends on nature. People think of nature as something which is kind of cute and beautiful, but not terribly important in a fundamental sense. They don't understand that their their lives depend on it. And I think that that, the role that nature plays in in facilitating our lifestyle, the essential role that nature plays in facilitating our entire lifestyles, is something which really needs to be emphasized and brought home to the person in the street. And to the extent that international conferences can do that, you know, the press coverage that comes with them, I think that's, that, that would be great. And you know, an institute, a place like the Paulson Institute can play an important role in that. I mean, your focus is primarily on, on uh, financial dimensions, but I think all NGOs that are interested in, in conservation can play an important role in, in making people understand that their well-being on a day-to-day basis really does depend on natural systems. And if we destroy natural systems, we destroy our, our own life support systems. I think that's very well put. I I agree with you on the challenges of large multinational meetings because you tend to reach the lowest common denominator. But if coming out of this COVID pandemic, if governments can come together and at least present the political will, it does create an opening for organizations like both of ours to try and push forward recommendations. Yeah, Um, I'd I'd really like to see all countries incorporate natural capital and environmental impact into their national income accounts. Mm-hmm. The World Bank has suggested this, the OECD has suggested this, and the OECD has actually done a lot of work in developing sort of model national accounting systems for countries, which sort of reflect properly the, the value of natural capital to the country and the way in which the country's economic activities are affecting its natural capital. So there's no innovation required here. You can just A country can just adopt the blueprint from the OECD these are OECD people are very sort of down-to-earth people. These are very practical accounts. Uh, I'd also like to see, incidentally, and this is perhaps a little bit more of a stretch, I'd like to see corporations analyze their dependence on natural capital and state this in their accounts. I'd like to see the SEC require companies to state quite clearly the ways in which they use and depend upon natural capital and you know whether the, how this affects the, the functioning of the company and, what, and give some kind of valuation to the natural capital that they use. Uh, you, know, you know, it could be you know, Pepsi-Cola, Pepsi using water. Uh, it could be uh, you know, Apple using hydroelectricity. Uh, mm-hmm. A variety of ways in which companies use naturally provided services. But I'd like to see them analyze that and state it in their reports so that the rest of us can emphasize the importance to, these, to the, the corporate world. 
Right. And there's a practical aspect to it. It's looking at the risk, right, that they have from loss of nature. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, the, the SEC does, in fact, require companies at the moment to, to comment on their exposure to climate change. Mm-hmm. Most of them make pretty perfunctory comments. But I think that we can take that idea further and require them to make more substantive comments, not just about the impact of climate change on their operations, but about the impact of the uh, degradation of the natural world in general on their operations and the way in which they depend on the natural world. Yes. And it seems like this would be a topic, too, to be taken up at the G20. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, In the context of bringing these political leaders together and if looking at it as a financial issue, putting it in one of the study groups. Yes, and that's something which the, the conference in China can certainly suggest. And, and maybe probably the conference in China will have Xi Jinping's ear. So maybe the, he can be, they can lobby him to, uh, to, to raise that at a G20 meeting. Mm-hmm. And with Chinese backing, it should be taken quite seriously. And if Biden is in the, the White House by then, I think that uh, the Biden administration would be quite sympathetic. So this leads actually, like, so you've outlined some very practical things that governments can be doing. What are the kinds of things that keep you up at night when you are thinking about this topic? What do you see as some of the big challenges ahead? Well, what keeps me up at night is is, is just thinking about rampant deforestation in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. It's such a tragedy, such a tragedy. I mean, the forests there have huge value in a whole range of ways. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of the support systems for a whole range of, of wonderful animals. They sequester vast amounts of carbon. They're probably very important from a bioprospecting perspective. You know, there's probably an awful lot of important drugs that we could discover by looking at the entities that live in those forests, yet they're being slashed and burned in a, in a medi- almost medieval way. Um, and the animals in them are being killed. It's just terrible. And so that keeps me up at night, I'm afraid. What could we do about that? Well, the real way to deal with that is to provide financial incentives for forest conservation. I mean, there, I think the fundamental issue is that in many developing countries, the central government, wherever it is, doesn't have much control over what's happening in the forests. So mm-hmm. the Indonesian government, for example, has often said that they would like to stop deforestation. But if you have any experience of Indonesia, you'll know that in this, some of the more outlying regions of the Indonesian archipelago, the government has very little control. And so the local governors and the local job, who are often army officers, just make deals with logging companies and allow them to log the forest or make deals with plantation companies and allow them to cut the forest and grow and put in typically palm oil plantations. So then, you know, they can make a lot of money out of that. And the government has just often doesn't even know what's going on. Uh, and if it does know what's going on, it has very little in the way of, of levers that it can pull to prevent it. If you can actually, if we could actually pay people for conserving forests, it would just change that balance. It would mean that the people there, people on the ground would actually stand to gain more by conserving the forest than by cutting it down. And they don't actually make an awful lot of money by cutting it down. If you look at the amount of money that you know, people in Indonesia make from allowing logging companies to cut the forests down and then allowing people like Unilever and so on to grow palm oil there, it's actually pitiful. You know, they make very little money out of this. It would not require a lot of money on our part to sort of make a better offer to them and say, okay, we'll pay you more just to keep your forests intact. And that's one of, that's really essentially what what the red system is doing, which I talked about earlier. It's providing people with financial incentives to keep forests intact. And you can essentially reduce the emission of CO2 by at a cost of something like $5 or $10 a ton of CO2 by doing that. But any other way of reducing CO2 costs tens to hundreds of dollars a ton. Uh, So it's a very, very inexpensive way of conserving and it wouldn't cost the rich countries very much at all to just pay countries to keep their forests intact, keep the carbon conserved in them, and keep the biodiversity there intact. Well, this really has been a very fascinating and eye-opening discussion. 
as we bring it to a close and you think about what our listeners could be doing, is there a recommendation that you have for them about what they can be doing to help and, and how they can be living a green and sustainable lifestyle that helps to protect nature? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of things you can do. And I just said that one of the things that keeps me awake at night is just the thought of the deforestation in, in Southeast Asia. And I've seen terrible pictures of orangutans being killed because they, they, they live in the forests that have been cleared. One of the things that you can do is, is stop buying products that contain palm oil because most of this clearing is done to produce palm oil. And palm oil is very, very widely used in manufactured foods. So look at foods, see what's on the label, and if it says it's, there's palm oil in it, don't buy it. The other thing, but more generally, I think a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet can make a big contribution. And a lot of land is cleared for cattle ranching. Uh, a lot of forests in, in Central America and Southern America, and some in Asia, though fewer and less in Asia, these are these lands that are cleared in order to make room for cattle. Uh, so a beef diet, beef-based diet, is extremely damaging to the environment. Not only is a lot of land cleared, but a huge amount of water is used in keeping the cattle going. And then, of course, there's all the, the feed that they, they eat. You have to clear more land in order to grow the feed that the cattle require. So uh, a vegetarian diet can make a big contribution uh, towards environmental conservation. And then anything that stops climate change. Uh, so, um, you know, you can in most parts of the U.S., you can insist that your utility provides you with clean power, a power that comes from wind or hydro or solar sources. Here in New York, I mean, I can contact Con Ed, the local utility, and tell them that I want clean power, and they're obliged to provide that. Uh, it may cost a, a fraction more, but only a, maybe a cent a kilowatt hour I'm paying. I think the standard charge here is 20 cents a kilowatt hour for ordinary power, and clean power is maybe one or two cents more. So it really doesn't cost a great deal more. Um, drive an electric car. Uh, you know, that reduces your impact on climate change a great deal. If all of us drove electric cars, Rather than cars with internal combustion engines, we'd uh, we'd make life we'd make the planet a much better place. Uh, but roughly, here in the U.S., something like thirty percent of all emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, come from electric from internal combustion engine vehicles, and not only just you know, greenhouse gases, but also an awful lot of other pollutants which damage people's health come from internal combustion engines. So there's a sort of a, a side benefit there of, of cleaning up cities as well. Use trains rather than planes. Trains have much less impact on the climate than planes do. So if you're traveling two, three, four hundred miles, take a train, not a plane. I know I can continue in that vein for a while, but there's a whole range of things like this that people can do. And of course, vote. Vote for the right people. Vote for people who are worried about the environment. Mm -hmm. Promise to, to do something about these problems. And join NGOs and help the NGOs to lobby for the, their goals. Great. Well, Professor Heal, it's been terrific talking with you today. You have really given us a lot to think about, ranging from how we can be better citizens in protecting the environment to thinking through how the financial sector can use market mechanisms to better protect and value nature. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for putting us in place. Thank you for joining us on Green Team Speaks Too. To listen to more episodes and learn more about the Paulson Institute's work in green finance, please visit us at paulsoninstitute.org. See you next time.